It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 156, The Prophet Elisha and the Heavenly Perspective. Going into this episode, which covers more of the miracles of Elisha, I was surprised at how gifted he was. We read of his miracles, but to combine his miracles with his ability to do such a variety of them, and his supernatural sight, and his ability to minister all works of life, I'm truly amazed at him. He truly does picture the ministry of Jesus. In this episode, we get the micro and the macro perspective of the workings of the prophet Elisha. He's a commoner like you and me, and he cares about the small things like a borrowed axe head, while he concerns himself with national matters as well as being an advisor to his king. Leaving notes and having an open line of communication with the king of Israel, Elisha warns of raiding parties and attacks from the Arameans until he himself becomes a military target. The resulting clash is a predictable and eye-opening, pardon the pun, event at the same time. In this episode, we see Elisha at the top of his game, performing miracles, and we have a classic confrontation of spiritual powers against physical might, as seen from the heavenly perspective. Something I failed to mention earlier was that the prophet Elijah told the Shunammite woman there's going to be a seven-year famine. Literally taking his advice, the Shunammite fled her abundant properties and went to Philistia to weigh out the famine. We are at least a few years into this famine and war is coming as well. Basically, God was still judging the house of Ahab and he wouldn't quit until the death of his family line and Jezebel. The Shunammite, being close to Elisha, was inspired enough to leave the country knowing conflict was coming to northern Israel. Knowing of upcoming famine and war through Elisha, she wisely leaves the country and we have to believe many, many more flee the country when the famine hits the land and a great numbers migrate out of Israel at this time and to find freedom, peace, and food elsewhere. Elisha was fully aware of the famine and hardships coming, but like a prophet, he didn't have all the details. He just possessed visions and partial views of the future. Elisha could run to Philistia. He could run to Judah. Maybe it would be safer there. Well, sort of, since Athaliah was basically running the government now. A prophet's job is to run into the thick of it, to intercede, to pray, and that is just what Elisha does. Almost like he wants to prevent as much war as possible. He serves his king to prevent as much starvation and death as possible. We have to understand Elisha serves God, his king, number one, followed by his earthly king, number two. He forges a relationship with the idol-worshipping Joram, the king of Israel, amazed that he pulled this off, considering what opposite spirits they carried, and he becomes one of his unpaid counselors. Also, Elisha has a network of messengers, 
It was commonplace for him to send letters via messengers or letters to kings. Like we said before, Elisha was very, very gifted communicator. It's almost laughable how God took a gifted, educated communicator like Elisha and had him trained by the country hard-talking, rough-speaking, poorly-dressed, and fed Elijah. They couldn't have been more different. Elijah wouldn't have had the time or the communication skills to keep a friendship with Joram. God seems to have such a sense of humor, making opposites attract sometimes. Elisha uses his gifts to the fullest here, befriending his king and becoming one of his advisors. Well, the famine is getting worse in Israel. Like the time of Ahab's kingship, the famine was striking the economic system of the country and causing serious damage. While Joram's finances were shrinking and the country was being ravaged by the lack of rain, Elisha's ministry was growing. Many more followers wanted to be discipled by him. After all, he multiplied food and no one was left hungry spiritually or physically if they walked with him. There was a growing desire of the people to learn from him. His ministry was moving from the startup phase to a church building phase. And if you're in a church building project, here's some scripture for you. 2 Kings chapter 6. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, where each of us can get a pole, and let us build a place there for us to meet. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied, and he went with them. Let's spend a little time here. First, it was suggested everyone get a pole and assist. Elisha was always encouraging others in their gifts. Everyone should erect their own part of the church. The Amish have a thing called a barn raising, where new members each have a house built for them. There's something community about this. Everyone had a hand in the construction. Everyone had a gift to share. Everyone a task they perform. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall according to their roles and families. Like Nehemiah, everyone has a part in the wall. Everyone had a hand or a pole in the work to build a new part of the church. It's not just a prophet or a pastor who borrows money with giving and pays out a contractor to perform his or her design. No, everyone has a part. With a suggestion in the right spirit, the prophet and the apostle says, Go, echoing Jesus' go and make disciples of all nations. This school of prophets will become the church of the prophets soon. In this right spirit, he let his disciples go ahead of him, and he followed their lead and their giftings. Though he was senior in their giftings, he let the people lead. In this right spirit, he let his disciples go ahead of them in the, his blessing, and he followed their lead and their giftings. A church with Jesus as its foundation and blessed by God, built around the gifts of its followers, empowered by God, should never fail. 2 Kings 6, 4 They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, he cried, it was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? Then he showed him the place. Elisha cut a stick, threw it there, and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. Yep, that's it. The story of the axe head that floated. Elisha made metal float. The axe head represents the head, and the axe represents a tool of construction. 
a tool of hard work and diligence, a tool of cutting, of piercing, of breaking. And when the head of the piercing breaks off, the top or head is missing, and we are left without a head, without a covering, exposed and naked and worthless. The body of Christ has purposes and abilities, and it must work together. Without the head, the axe has no skills or purposes and ability to pierce darkness. The axe is only as good as the person holding it. Without the head, there's no purpose. God restores all things and shows his power to any who call upon him to piece things together that are broken. Perhaps this church was built more upon the gifts of its servants and failed in its perspective of keeping the appropriate head and focus on God. This church failed to keep its correct perspective, possibly. Seeing themselves as more of a tool than a tool in the hand of its maker, that is God. Regardless, God returns the head back to the tool out of the baptismal waters of the Jordan. Its borrowed or gifted nature is to be turned back to its rightful giver, which is God. So on a different note, it's just a tiny picture of things that happened around Elisha. Axe heads floating, healed wells, multiplication of food, just everyday miracles. It says at the end of the book of John, the following, John 21, 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So now that Elisha has a school of the prophets on the Jordan River, or maybe let's call it a church of the prophets, it's incredibly successful. It also serves as an advance guard because his sight appears to be a vanguard in no man's territory exposed to Aramean attacks. I just wonder what it was like in this time to walk with these many prophets. It must have been a wild time. During a soon-to-be wartime, prophets nearly on the border of the countries building houses and performing miracles. No wonder the enemy wanted to destroy this part of northern Israel. What happens next is absolutely amazing. 2 Kings 6, 8 Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing this place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked down the place, indicated by the man of God, and time and time again Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Okay, so that would freak me out big time. A prophet knowing what goes on in someone's bedroom? For a king, come on. His reaction was anger. He was furious. And how did this guy know this? I mean, how did they know that Elisha knew what goes on in someone's bedroom? Was it a figure of speech? Or did they see his spirit when it walked through the castle or whatever? I don't know. This is just phenomenal giftings. Like a spy who learns a heart of secrets from within the enemy's territory, Elisha hears the plottings of the king in his own palace. Combine this with his statements to Gehazi, Did not my spirit go with you when you spoke to Naaman? His giftings are awesome. And we can read them just so literal, though I just don't understand them. 
And it's going to only get better as we head into Elisha's seer gift, the ability to see supernaturally. He had the ability to see and hear in the spirit realm, outside of the three dimensions. Simply put, Elisha had ability to see outside our limited three-dimensional vision. He could see angels and demons and reside outside our normal understanding of life's vision and limitations. And more to follow on this, as Ben-Hadad makes Elisha his next military target. Well, Ben-Hadad suffered from extreme short-term memory loss. Did he not remember his servant Naaman, who told him not to mess with this guy? For he was a miracle worker, and he knew it. I mean, Naaman probably stood before him, and he could see how he was healed of leprosy, and it came from Elisha. Benadad sends an army regardless now, not against northern Israel, but against Elisha alone. An army versus a prophet. Okay, so it's probably not an army. It's more like a hundred mounted cavalry out to get the prophet. But I'm going to use the word army for the rest of the episode. Let's see what happens next. 2 Kings 6.13 Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dotham. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. So Elisha's totally surrounded and his servant is terrified. But Elisha's full of faith and operating in a seer gift. He declares a spiritual truth for all time. 2 Kings 6.16 Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Okay, that's just outrageous. Spiritual vision revealed the horses and chariots of God. No doubt, Elisha probably saw these angels time and time again after the original moment when Elijah was taken up to heaven. In faith, Elisha does something remarkable, and it really amazes me how he shows the kindness that brings us to repentance. 2 Kings 6.18 And as the enemy came toward them, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. So the enemy army was blinded and he leads them to Samaria. Love what he says though. You're not looking for me. You must be looking for someone else. Follow me. I will lead you to the man you are looking for. It's clear. He's talking about Jesus. Who else do we lead people to when they're spiritually blinded? It's wonderful how he saves all who seek his direction. These aggressive men of war were instantly humbled, and they were searching for light and direction and counsel, and the prophet gave them more than that. The resulting scene breaks all types of rules and stereotypes and shows incredible wisdom and mercy and grace and God's absolute kindness. What happens next is Elisha leads them into Samaria, and all the soldiers inside Samaria surround these blinded soldiers. Archers were angled toward these men. Trained swordsmen were armed and prepared for any trap. 
Joram comes up to the Elisha, whispers the following words, but Elisha answers in crazy wisdom. 2 Kings 6.21 Shall I kill him? Shall I kill him, my father? Shall I kill him? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So the soldiers ate dinner right there, probably under spear point. Joram must have been floored. As the soldiers regained their sight, sitting at the table of their enemy, Elisha's wise actions brought years of peace to Israel. His actions are some of the truest reflections in the Old Testament of fighting hate with peace. Romans 12:18. Is it possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone? Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but let room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, we've got to end with the heavenly perspective. Here is Elisha, surrounded by an army, and he sees into another dimension, and he can see angels of fire residing over the situation. An enemy army, empowered by demons, was on the hunt for Elisha. The army came into the atmosphere that the prophet carried, and when it did, the host of demons that empowered it were bound and prevented from continuing into Israel's territory. Like Caleb said eons ago, their protection was gone. Elisha could see that there was an army besieging him, and surrounding him was a host of angels and fiery horses and chariots. Pretty awesome. His totally famous statement was, Greater are those who are for us than those against us. Isn't that true in life? Whenever we have the heavenly perspective, our troubles, our trials, concerns, and worries are utterly nothing. Let's get the heavenly perspective. God, who is above all, has the ability to destroy all evil with a single word, just like he created the universe. He has thousands, if not millions, of angels who have unbelievable supernatural power. Just one of them destroyed Assyria's greatest army in a single night. That's the might of one angel. An angel of death took away the firstborn of Egypt. The devil, who is a fallen angel, has spiritual power, but it is nothing compared to God's, and his fallen angels are only a third of the total angels. God is an overwhelming superiority in numbers of angels, two to one, and in spiritual power there is really no comparison. The odds are clearly in favor of the believer. And Elisha says this, He prayed for his servant, who had no name, which only confirms even nobodies can have the heavenly perspective. Do you want the heavenly perspective in your life? I do. I would like it every day. Just pray like Elisha did. Lord, open my eyes. Let me have eyes to see and ears to hear. The Lord is not far from the brokenhearted, not far from all who call. When you are troubled, when you have fear, when you have worry, pray for the heavenly perspective. We've done a bit of counseling over the years, and it's an interesting question to ask someone who is consumed by fear and worry. The question is, what has God said about your problem? 
It usually derails any counseling and it turns into a spiritual conversation, which trumps earthly concerns. And when we inquire of God regarding our issues, we get his vision and the heavenly perspective. When we understand how much God is for us, we cannot be consumed by fear and doubt and worry. Greater is he who is above time and space and worldly power. Greater is he who is above all principalities and powers. Greater is he who is above all things. Let us never forget the heavenly perspective. Greater are those who are for us than those who are against us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.